Hello, um, welcome to the fourth in this occasional series of uh, talks about the relationship between India and Israel, between <coughs> sorry, between Zionism and Hindutva, and between the various struggles that are taking place uh, in these parts of the world. My name is Professor Varinda Kalra. I teach sociology at the University of Warwick, and I've been chairing this series. Um, today, I'm really delighted to welcome Abdullah Mouassouis, who will be talking uh, to us about the political economy of the relationship between India and Israel. Uh, I just want to make a few points before we begin. Housekeeping points. Uh, please uh, ask, put your questions in the Q&A. Uh, box. This is a webinar, so there is no chat function enabled, and we'll look at all the questions both from Facebook and from the webinar at the end of the talk. Um, uh, Abdullah will talk for about 40 minutes and then we'll take uh, questions and answers. Uh, I also just want to alert everyone that uh, this is also the month in which the European Legal Study Centre's report, along with the British Society for Middle Eastern Studies, uh, on the adverse impact of the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism has been released. And again, this series forms part of our not being silenced in academia in relationship to uh, the issues uh, surrounding Israel and India. Uh, both of these states uh, have now got into a habit of using anti-Semitism and Hindu phobia as a way of silencing debate about the way they treat minorities and their citizens. I myself, as many of you know, have also been a victim of this. Um, and again, uh, you know, really good to see so many of you here to uh, support this ongoing series. So without further ado, uh, I'm gonna hand over to Abdullah. I'll just introduce him. Uh, Abdullah is a Palestinian writer and educator. And we're really pleased that uh, he's actually the first Palestinian speaking on this issue. So far, we've had South Asians speaking on the issue. He's currently a doctoral candidate at the University of Exeter, where his work broadly explores the globalization of settler colonial logics, with a special focus on the colonizations of Palestine and Kashmir. Abdullah has previously written about the politics of food and the socio-political role of internet memes across South and West Asia, something I've been looking forward to look at. As well as this, Abdullah also writes poetry and speculative fiction. So I'd like to hand over to Abdullah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor. And thank you um, to the Institute for Palestine Studies uh, for hosting me. Um, really, it's an honor to be part of this lecture series, and I'm really happy to be able to contribute to it. Um, I was going to use um, slides. I guess I can share my screen, and uh, and I'll, I'll I'll just kind of show a few pictures to start us off, and then I'll uh, and then I'll 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 I'll, I'll go from there. Um, so I'm just sharing my screen now. Um, yep, there we go. Can everyone see my my screen? Um, yeah. So there's just a few pictures here. So. Yeah. Um, India has been in the news many times in recent weeks and months for a variety of reasons, ranging from August's horrifying pogroms in Manipur and the demolition of Muslim homes in Haryana to the bizarre story of Prime Minister Narendra Modi 
uh, allegedly refusing to disembark his aircraft upon arriving in South Africa for the BRICS summit, which took place last month, due to the fact that he was only meant to be greeted by a cabinet minister and not President Ramaphosa. Um, the South African government, though, denies that this was the case. Uh, in the few days before preparing this paper as well, we also heard of the chilling allegations by the Canadian government that their citizen, Hardeep Singh Nijjar, was assassinated by an operative uh, working for the Indian spy agency, RAW, which stands for the Research and Analysis Wing. These stories all reveal something about how the Indian state seeks to project its power both at home and abroad. And here I've just included just a couple of pictures um, that I think will resonate with, with, with Palestinians uh, who want to learn about India and what's going on there. So this is a picture from uh, Nuh district in Haryana in India, uh, where a bulldozer, and you can clearly see that it's um, a JCB bulldozer, which is also um, a matter of import demolishing uh, this property over here that's owned by a Muslim family uh, after some violence that had taken place there. This picture, by the way, was uh, part of, was attached to an article on Al Jazeera, which I'll, I'll, I'll quote at length uh, in a minute. Uh, this also is a bunch of homes uh, that were um, demolished and destroyed in Manipur, um, which is in kind of like the Northeast uh, of India. Um, and I think, yeah, as I mean, as a Palestinian researcher, and I guess as Palestinians who are learning about India, uh, this, you know, concept of like home demolitions as part of a project of ethnic cleansing will be very resonant uh, with all of us. And we'll be very familiar with these images. Of course, we see them in, um, in you know, parts of all of historic Palestine, really, but most recently, um, very visibly in places like Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan. Just to give uh, people who are attending who, who don't have too much of a spatial knowledge of, uh, of India. India obviously is a really big place. Um, I've highlighted here in red Haryana, just so people know it's very close to Delhi, the national capital. Uh, and Manipur, which is, you know, I mean, if you're talking about, uh, you know, a large place, it's quite far from the national capital, but it's also very important. It's also very close to Nagaland, which is somewhere where policies of military occupation have been in place for a few decades at this point. Um, at the up here in the north, uh, I've included them in a different color, uh, because of course, these are the territories that are recognized as disputed by many and occupied by even more of Jammu and Kashmir and Ladakh, which um, were kind of bifurcated in 2019 as part of uh, the revocation of the special status of the former Indian state of Jammu and Kashmir, um, which I guess, uh, which Indian in the sense that that's how it was recognized by the Indian constitution, not Indian in the sense of that that's where they belong, but uh, we'll come to that later. Um, and just so people are aware, like this is, um, you know, kind of like the geography of a lot of what I'm going to be talking about. Uh, with that being said, I can stop sharing my screen, I suppose, um, or I can just leave it there uh, on the map. Uh, while I continue to, to, to kind of present the rest of this presentation. So what's striking about the killing um, of Hardeep Singh Najjar, should the Canadian allegations prove to be true, is that it seems to fit into a pattern of Indian security organizations taking inspiration from another state about how they should operate domestically and on foreign soil. So in, officials within the Indian state and security apparatuses for a long time have been calling for India to adopt an attitude and with it certain protocols 
more resemblant uh, of those of Israel in a technical and a discursive sense. So for example, D. Shivanandan, who was um, the Mumbai police commissioner uh, in 2008, 2009, uh, around the time that uh, a very large attack had taken place uh, over there, um, had uh, remarked that India should imitate Israel's quote, killer instinct when it comes to protecting itself. Um, in a recent article on the Niger affair for the Telegraph, Ben Farmer and Saman Latif uh, also note that although assassinations are not part of Raw's de jure scope, uh, and here I'm quoting them, some of the most hawkish Indian securocrats have disagreed, believing that Raw should copy Israel's Mossad and be able to conduct killings. As for the horrifying acts of spectacular violence um, within India, so here I'm talking about the home demolitions and the pogroms in Manipur, uh, among many others. Many commentators point out that this signals that India is charging closer towards launching a quote, full-fledged genocide against Muslims and other minorities in the state. Here I'm quoting Sandeep Sen, uh, who is the author of the article from which I borrowed the, um, the picture, uh, this picture here. Um, in the article that he published earlier this month uh, on the demolition in, in the Nuh district in Haryana, which is the only, by the way, Muslim majority district in the state, Sen points out that the Hindu right in India when it comes to demographic engineering, quote, has been explicit in its aspiration to emulate, and here, unquote, the very same state from which it gains inspiration uh, for this sort of brazen um, approach to, to, to kind of domestic and international politics. So, of course, this state, given the title of the lecture, of course, is Israel. And to continue to quote Sen, India appears to be, quote, inspired by Israel's effort to systematically erase Palestinian history, legacy, and culture from the landscape. They are inspired by the way more than 530 Palestinian villages were systematically destroyed during and after the Nakba of 1948, as well as the way Palestinian homes continue to be demolished across the occupied West Bank and Jerusalem to make way for Israeli settlements considered illegal under international law. So of course, this sentiment, um, despite not being completely mutual, um, and I can deal with that in the questions uh, if, if, if that's desired, is in large part not unrequited either. So for example, in January, at the signing of the $1.2 billion deal that handed control of the newly privatized Haifa port over to Adani ports and special economic zone, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu not only hailed the improvement in connectivity between India and Israel that this deal would provide, but also called the deal liberating, insinuating that a burden was being lifted. In fact, Netanyahu likened the deal to the role of Indian scholars in Haifa during the First World War, saying that, and here I'm quoting Netanyahu, over a hundred years ago and during World War I, it was brave Indian soldiers who helped liberate the city of Haifa and today it's very robust Indian investors who are helping to liberate the port of Haifa. Of course, this is a reference to the Battle of Haifa in World War I, where a brigade made up of Indian soldiers from Jodhpur, Mysore, and Hyderabad played a role in the British Empire taking control of the Haifa port, which had previously been under the control of the Ottoman Empire and the Central Powers. Having touched on the significance of India, Israel, and their mutual relationship towards one another, I arrive at the central objective of this talk, which is to lay out some of the key dimensions that play into the political economy of this relationship. This political economy is based on a convergence of the logics of colonialism and capitalism to strengthen the process of violent state building and colonial and settler colonial consolidation and entrenchment. 
in a practical sense domestically, but also within the international geopolitical and economic arenas. Um, so we can start um, by talking about just broadly the history of, of the relationship between Israel and India. Um, I recognize that not everybody who's here attended all of the past talks, and so I'm going to kind of touch on this very quickly before I go into the most significant, I would say, like three and a half pillars of this relationship, which are sustainability, defense and security. And that's the reason I call it three and a half, because that's so large that it accounts for one and a half and infrastructure. So what's often said about India's relationship with Israel is that India, as a champion of anti-colonialism and non-alignment uh, immediately after its independence, was initially a strong supporter of the Palestinian cause. For example, the friendship between the PLO chairman Yasser Arafat and the Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, the daughter of India's founding Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru, is a famous one. In an article for Outlook, a former Indian diplomat in Palestine uh, noted that he met Arafat a few times in both Indira and Rajiv Gandhi's um, Prime Minister's offices and that Arafat, and here quoting the diplomat, had a great affection for Indira Gandhi. However, What's not said as often is that the strong affinities between India and Israel predate both states' establishment. What's also often not acknowledged is the significant geostrategic role India's public championing of the Palestinian cause had when it came to India's own colonial project in Kashmir. Nehru, in fact, had seriously contemplated recognizing Israel as early as the summer of 1948, uh, when the Israeli state declared its independence upon Palestinian land. According to P.R. Kumaraswamy, and here I'm quoting, by September 1948, a favorable decision regarding recognition was a foregone conclusion, and only the exact date remained uncertain. By May 1949, Nehru's sister, Vijay Lakshmi Pandit, India's then ambassador to the United States, had informed her Israeli counterpart, uh, Eliyahu Elat, that recognition may have to wait uh, until after the Kashmir dispute is uh, settled, um, to use very similar wording to, um, to, Kuma, uh, to her. According to Elat, uh, Nehru himself in a private meeting, quote, after announcing complete frankness, explained India's attitude towards Israel. People never anti-Semitic, Hitler made them friends of Jews. Uh, many Indians admired and in past Zionist and now most sympathetic to Israel, he had chose he had to choose the slow, long way towards recognition in order to justify it objectively and minimize internal opposition. With a solution to the Kashmir question proving more and more elusive, Nehru concluded that recognition should not be delayed. India eventually recognized Israel in September 1950. An Israeli consulate was opened in, in well, then Bombay, now Mumbai, in 1953. The 67 war between Israel and its neighboring countries marked another turning point in the relationship between Israel and India. Indira Gandhi, impressed by Israel's military prowess, sought the establishment of a back channel between the newly established research and analysis wing, which I kind of alluded to earlier, and the Israeli Mossad. Represented on the Indian side by Ra's first chief, uh, Rameshwar Natkao. Uh, for those who had the horrible misfortune of watching the film uh, Mission Majnu, which uh, arrived on Netflix uh, a few months ago. He's a very prominent character in that film. Um, and in fact, this relationship is, is very well portrayed in that film, although I'm fairly certain it's quite ahistoric in many ways. But the film in and of itself is a really interesting example of the India-Israel relationship as it exists today. 
A large part of the reasoning behind establishing this back channel was for it to act as a countermeasure to Pakistan's improving relationships with China and North Korea. The back channel allowed for the exchange of military technology and facilitated the secret visit uh, of the then Foreign Minister of Israel, Moshe Dayan, to India in August 1977. So during the final years of Indira's life, and more clearly during the rule of her son Rajiv Gandhi, India began undertaking a project of economic liberalization. Many states around the world were undergoing such projects during this period. Reaganomics, Thatcherism, Chicago School economics were all coming into vogue. Israel was among them, having first, quote, announced the elimination of almost all currency controls and opened the economy to free capital flows, unquote, from uh, Sussman in October 1977. This created the space for private sector businesses to get very involved in, evolve, in, the, in evolving the India-Israel relationship. The legacy of this role is played today by private businesses in the relationship's political economy. So Israel and India then established formal relations in January 1992. Uh, at this point, a series of crises in Indian politics, including the assassination of Rajiv Gandhi, uh, led Narasimha Rao to become the Prime Minister of India just a few months prior. He assumed the presidency of the Indian National Congress after Rajiv's death in May 1991. And one of his first duties was to oversee the release of eight Israeli tourists who were kidnapped in by Kashmiri resistance fighters on suspicion of being Israeli intelligence agents. Uh, Azad Isa, who recently published um, a really good book on the India-Israel relationship, called this a media spectacle uh, in which the Indian press called on its government to normalize relations with Israel. So it's worth noting at this point that all the events that I've discussed so far happened under the supposedly secular and supposedly anti-colonial or at least liberal uh, Indian National Congress governments from Nehru to Indira to Rajiv to Rao. But while many commentators rightly point out that uh, relations between India and Israel tend to be warmer during the times when the BJP and its predecessor pro-Hindutva parties were in the ascendancy, uh, these relationships are still important uh, and impactful during the periods of rule by Congress governments. Uh, to kind of create an analogy with the present, Azad Isa points out that Israel had become, and here I'm quoting him, so completely normalized in the Indian imagination that it was possible for Indian liberals to be outraged by the hijacking of their phones during the Pegasus affair, uh, but still be in favor of India's close ties with the Israeli state. So here he uses the example of Rahul Gandhi, who described the act of his phone being hacked by Pegasus as an act of treason, but he did not ask why in Israel sold the software to the Indian government. And Swati Chaturvedi, who was another target of the Pegasus project, a well-known journalist, wrote a really important book uh, about BJP internet trolls, uh, also said in an article for Haaretz that for the sake of its relations with the democracy camp in India and around the world, Israel needs to shut down NSO and companies like it. So at this point, it may make some sense to discuss a bit of theory um, in reference to the India-Israel relationship or the strategic partnership to give it its official designation as it exists today. Um, since we are discussing how the strategic partnership is built on the convergence of capitalist and colonialist logics, it's important to unpack what exactly this means in context, starting with the primary connective force between capitalism and colonialism, uh, which, is, which is racism. 
So in the Israeli case, um, scholars like Ronit Lenton do a good job of explaining Zionism as being a form of racism. She states that Zionist ideology itself articulates the Jewish race constructing a homogenous Jewish people with Jewish self and other racialization as an integral part of Zionist ideology. And on the other side of these articulations, she points out that Israel is then, quote, awash with dehumanizing racial classifications, including of Palestinian citizens, Palestinian occupied and besieged subjects, and diasporic Palestinians, many of whom have been living in refugee camps since the 1948 Nakba. In the Indian context, policies towards places such as Kashmir, where India is attempting to erect a settler colony on occupied land, and places where India's sovereignty is enacted through intense violence, such as Nagaland, Assam, and topically, since we're talking about it, Manipur, in the Northeast, display clear elements of racial logic and other forms of othering. In addition to this, India has always had a tense relationship with minoritized communities in the country. And here I'm using the term minoritized um, because these communities are recognized as minorities because of the demographic politics of early Indian National Congress leaders. So, for example, people like, um, you know, the very often revered uh, Mohandas Gandhi. In the case of Kashmiris, which is the case that I know best, uh, Atharzia points out, uh, and here I'm quoting her, how racialization exists on the basis of the religio-cultural identity of Kashmiris, which in the Indian narrative is primarily constructed as the Muslim other. According to her, uh, Kashmiri bodies are constructed as deviant, and traitors to Indian national sovereignty, and quoting her marked as killable in the nationalist imaginary. So for her, um, continuing to quote, the spectacle of the killable body is important for the consolidation of the nation state, project of India, and for concretizing national opinion on its assertion of irrefutable sovereignty over Kashmir. These representations are made in various ways, uh, including through film, uh, where, and here I'm quoting Harz Zargar, Bollywood's representation of Kashmir belies India's anxiety about Pakistan and Muslims, which perceives as antagonistic to the idea of a Hindu nation. Um, I recently had also the misfortune of watching Roja for the first time, and people may know it. Um, and uh, so that's a film that came out in the early 90s that sought to kind of like address uh, this question of, of, well, to address kind of like the newly launched like armed uprising in Kashmir from kind of like a, a pro-India perspective. And that was, uh, for those who, who, who haven't seen it, I, I recommend it from a, from a scholarly perspective. Um, and interestingly enough, I, I believe it's not technically a Bollywood film since it was produced in the south of India. The main language spoken in the film is Telugu. Um, so that's also a really interesting kind of aspect in and of itself. Um, there also exist points of connection covered in depth by other speakers in this series between Hindu nationalism and Zionism in terms of their racist historiographies. So to touch on this in a really quick but impactful way, I'll note that none other than V.D. Savarkar, uh, a founding ideo ideologue of Hindutva, made the historical argument back in 1947 that, and here I'm quoting him directly, the Arabian Muslims invaded Palestine Muslims, because he wrote it with an O, invaded Palestine only a few decades before they invaded our Sindh, and just as their fanatical fury exterminated the ancient Egyptians or Persians, they attempted to wipe out with fire and sword the Jewish people too. But they failed in this unholy ambition. The fatherland or the holy land of the Arabian Muslims, 
lies in Arabia and not in Palestine. So that's you know very resonant with sort of Zionist discourse from the time that seeks to homogenize Palestinians um, with other Arabs who are non-Palestinian, saying that you know there are 22 Arab countries out there. Why can't the Palestinians go live in one of those? It's worth keeping in mind here that Savarkar also defined Hinduness and by extension nationality, Indian well, by extension Hindu nationality, by virtue of both one's fatherland as well as their holy land. And so that's just an important aspect to add there, why this fatherland or holy land point is important in the quote. So in this sense, uh, Samir Amin's suggestion, um, and here I quote that the accumulation model of historical capitalism based on the accelerated disappearance of the peasant world can't be reproduced in the peripheries of the system which have no Americas to conquer is not entirely accurate because both India and Israel do seek to create their own peripheries without proof, within peripheries. We will also return to the point about the disappearance of the peasant world later in this talk, since it does bear relevance to India's attempts with Israeli support to, as David Harvey calls it, accumulate by dispossession through campaigns of privatization and financialization that enable the proletarianization of subsistence agriculture. So to conclude this section over here, it's important to make a couple of points uh, about the nature and objectives of neoliberal transformation. So Adam Haniye uh, explains that, and that within neoliberalism, and here I'm quoting him, the solution to the South's development problem is, open is to open markets to the outside world, lift restrictions on investment in key sectors of the economy, liberalize ownership laws and end, subs end subsidies to the poor for food and other necessities, deregulate labor markets and increase market competition so that, continuing to quote, the private sector will be the key engine of growth. So while many neoliberals um, herald its introduction uh, as sidelining nation states as key actors in the world economy in favor of private or transnational capitalists, the Canadian Marxists Leo Panitch and Sam Jindan argue that in reality, the result of neoliberalism has been the opposite. Each nation state must manage, and here quoting them, its domestic capitalist order in a way that contributes to the managing of the international capitalist order thereby reordering a liberal state's hierarchy of responsibilities in light of its global obligations. So to discuss the political economy of the India-Israel relationship in more detail in practice, we first begin with the theme of sustainability, um, a much heralded, um, sorry, I just saw the message about stopping the screen share. Um, I can stop it uh, or I can continue with it. I thought I'd just leave the map up, but sure, we can stop it so that people can see me um, if that's what the people would like. I, I, I was meant to get a shave before this, but I completely forgot. Um, and so that maybe explains why I was keen to have the map up, but this is totally fine as well. Um, sorry, anyway, that was a complete sidetrack. So, I'm starting with sustainability um, because it's a much heralded dimension in Israel's attempt to promote itself abroad. Um, particularly, this part will examine how Israel and India's relationship has entrenched their colonial projects in Palestine and Kashmir by targeting food security and sovereignty. Um, so the roots of this aspect of India and Israel's relationship actually run really deep um, to the relationship's very establishment, in fact. So Kumara Swami again notes in his article on India's recognition of Israel that in November 1947, so just around the time that the UN voted on Palestine, um, 
acting, and here I'm quoting him, acting on the suggestions of K.M. Paniker and Shiva Rao, Chaim Weizmann offered technical assistance to India, which Nehru accepted in principle. The assistance in question was agricultural assistance, which India then requested formally in March 1949. So Kumaraswamy quotes an Israeli diplomat from the time who wrote that, and here quoting the diplomat, India's approach to us for a loan of agricultural experts showed that no real hostility existed. Of course, this approach for agricultural expertise was ironic considering the ecological damage that Zionist settler colonialism enacted on the land of Palestine. So the modern day parallel for this loaning of agricultural expertise is the Indo-Israel Agricultural Project, which is a project that began in 2006 when India and Israel signed an agreement for agricultural cooperation. The website of the Israeli embassy in India proudly states that this agreement was based on Israel's unique experience in agriculture. The project in its current form is overseen by the Mission for Integrated Development of Horticulture and Mashav, Israel's Agency for International Development Cooperation, which is under the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Its three stated goals are to increase crop diversity, productivity, and resource use efficiency. And the main process by which this is done is by establishing these like they call them agricultural centers of excellence, which is a really ironic name, whose purpose is, I'm here quoting the website, to allocate land and professional manpower. So there are centers in Punjab and Haryana, which are notable um, for the farmers' protests there in recent times, as well as in Gujarat, Rajasthan, Maharashtra, and Tamil Nadu. Um, I'm just gonna have a bit of water. Last year, um, Yair Eshel, the agricultural attaché at the um, Israeli embassy in Delhi, well, New Delhi, also announced that two such centers were to be established in Jammu and Kashmir. One in Srinagar, which is the sort of like in the Kashmir Valley, and one in Jammu City, which is south of the valley. Um, Aside from the absurdity of Israel seeking to teach lessons to an already agriculturally prosperous Kashmir region, uh, Israel is itself not able to sustain itself agriculturally due to its reliance on cash crops and monoculture, which both compromise food security. Um, so things like avocados, for example, which like should I mean should not be grown in Palestine, considering that it's water scarce. Um, but that's just one example. Incidentally, agriculture is already the largest sector and contributor to the Kashmir economy, um, and the importance of tourism, uh, often held up by Modi and other senior BJP politicians as being the most important sector in the Kashmiri economy, is only marginal by comparison. So when Article 370 was revoked in 2019, Modi went on TV and made a big statement about how, finally, the tourism sector can be allowed to flourish because that's what Kashmir needs for economic development, which is ironic considering that actually tourism is, is like I said, marginal um, compared to, to agriculture um, within the Kashmir economy. Despite Kashmir's relative prosperity in terms of agricultural production, the region still suffers from something of a food security crisis. But it's important to highlight that this is part of the project of Indian colonialism. So one of the most damaging consequences of the borders drawn around Kashmir by the Indian occupation, and so if you recall on the map that I showed earlier, um, it's, Kashmir is pretty much has a border to its west, north, and east, 
that are all hard borders. Um, it's very difficult to cross um, those borders at all. Um, that the borders drawn around Kashmir by the Indian occupation severed land connections between Kashmir, what's now the areas of Pakistan and Central Asia. And that's problematic because Kashmiri produce is then restricted to the Indian market. And those are historic, by the way, sort of like the areas that are now Pakistan, Central Asia, and also like sort of the, the, the parts of, 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 of China to, to Kashmir's east are also historical important trade routes. So now, as I was saying, Kashmiri produce is restricted to the Indian market, mainly through one primary road um, that links Srinagar with Delhi. This has promoted the growth of cash crops in Kashmir as well. So the Indian government has then accelerated the promotion of these cash crops in the region since the revocation of Articles 370 and 35A in August 2019, which had granted Kashmir a semi-autonomous status and special state subject laws. Among them, a restriction on non-Kashmiri's abilities to purchase land in the territory, and this is really important. Um, by the way, if you were to fly into Kashmir these days, you would see a lot of ads for new crops that are being grown there. Um, I think last year, the main thing was lavender. And it's important to note that the farmers who were encouraged to grow lavender largely were previously growing maize. Um, and, and people who understand, uh, people who like do research into like uh, ecology and agricultural production would know why this is this is a problem, especially considering that Lavender needs to be processed for it to have value once it's harvested in many cases, and uh, facilities to do that are not uh, incredibly accessible nor available in, in, in Kashmir, which again puts extra strain on the, the road link to Delhi. Um, one of the results of this is that as Kashmiri peasants were economically then empowered by land reforms and other policies implemented during the 50s aimed at trading self-determination for economic prosperity. Um, and here I, I should probably um, plug Hafsa Kanjwal's new book, Colonizing Kashmir, which does a really good job of explaining this notion of trying to kind of like trade self-determination for economic prosperity, which was a failed project in any case. Um, left subsistence farming in order to pursue white collar careers, as many of my interlocutors told me, while hiring agricultural workers from India to work with the crops. And we'll come back to the agricultural workers at a later stage. This was the first step in what's now an ongoing process of replacing Kashmiri indigenous expertise on farming with market-oriented agriculture, linking both its labor and produce with the Indian agricultural economy. Given that Kashmir is under military occupation, the capitalist relation also manifests as a form of colonial exploitation. Um, especially given that resistance to Indian involvement in the territory demonstrates that this economic reality is not truly hegemonic in the sense that it doesn't exist as the result of some sort of capitalist consciousness and consent, but rather it's imposed through violence and the hard power of the Indian military apparatus and its soldiers. Another consequence of this proletarianization and depeasantization of Kashmiri agriculture is that many staple crops such as rice are no longer grown in Kashmir, leaving the region dependent on India. And of course, rice is uh, you know, very important to Kashmiri cuisine. So to make this point more clearly, one reason for diminishing food security in Kashmir is an agricultural extractivism that leaves Kashmir reliant on Indian labor and consumer markets, which is a process of colonial integration. 
It remains to be seen how the introduction of dry docks in the region built through India's courting of outside investment will affect this further. Now, to further add to the irony um, of the Indian colonial project attempting to use Israeli expertise to undermine Kashmiri food security, another factor connected to the occupation that diminishes it is the um, environmental impact uh, of the military occupation and the construction of military infrastructure. So the journalist Zulfiqar Majid uh, revealed last year that large, and here I'm quoting him, over 30,000 hectares of agricultural land has been converted for non-agricultural activities in Kashmir since 2013. So this is before the revocation of Article 370. Uh, according to him, and continuing to quote, with housing colonies, shopping complexes, and other buildings cropping up on agricultural land, experts believe that in the near future, there will hardly be any land left for agricultural purposes in, in the valley. In a sense, India is not relying on Israeli expertise to find a solution to issues of food security, a crisis that India itself created. Rather, it's relying on Israeli expertise to take advantage of the logics of capitalist agriculture in order to develop its own settler colonial project in Kashmir. These concerns, of course, are not unfounded and not unique to Israel's agri-diplomacy in India. A report produced by an organization called Grain in 2022, it's a brilliant report, states that, and here directly quoting the report, much of this agri-diplomacy is carried out by a handful of little-known companies led by former defense and secret service officers with high-level political connections. In fact, the Israeli agricultural sector is so deeply enmeshed within the networks of the Israeli military with the Green Report discovering that, and here I quote them, it would be hard to find a single Israeli company among the hundreds of agri-tech startups that exist today that do not have some linkage with the Israeli military or secret service. Furthermore, and here I'm going to quote the Grain Report at, a lot, at length, the report points out that the growth of Israeli agribusiness is inseparable from the country's ongoing apartheid system, which not only involves the mass expro expropriation of lands from Palestinian farmers and Bedouin herders, but also the destruction of traditional Palestinian food, fishing, and farming systems, leaving remaining producers dependent on imported Israeli agrochemicals and seeds. Agribusiness companies operating in the illegal settlements also benefit from tax incentives, cheap labor provided by dispossessed Palestinian farmers, as well as, as, well as less stringent pollution regulations. With this in mind, it's clear that the Israeli notion of sustainability, which forms one cornerstone of the economic relationship that we're talking about, is built on the exploitation and dispossession of Palestinians and Kashmiris, greenwashing both processes at once. It can be argued that Kashmir, similarly, is fertile ground for the creation of a similar military-based economic normativity. As well as this, however, Israel's sustainability credentials also play a convenient role in American and Indian attempts to contain China's influence, as can be seen from the White House statement announcing the creation of the I2U2 group, uh, which is a group of states and not a pop band. The statement announced that the new group would seek, and here I'm quoting the statement, to tackle some of the greatest challenges confronting our world with a particular focus on joint investments and new initiatives in water, energy, transportation, space, health, and food security. Largely, and here this is my addition, largely relying on the mobilization, and going back to the report, private sector capital and expertise to modernize infrastructure, advance low carbon development pathways for our industries, improve public health and access to vaccines, advance physical connectivity between countries in the Middle East region, 
jointly create new solutions for waste treatment, explore joint financing opportunities, connect our startups to I2U2 investments, and promote and the development of critical emerging and green technologies, all while ensuring the near and long-term food and energy security. So while it doesn't specifically mention China, it's useful to recall William Toe's definition of minilateralism. So this is a, what's called a minilateral group, the I2U2, which sees it, and here I'm quoting Toe, as a narrower and usually informal initiative intended to address a specific threat, contingency or security issue with fewer states, usually three or four, sharing the same interest for resolving it within a finite period of time. While Israel and the UAE do have meaningful commitments and engagements with China, the two larger countries involved in the group, India and the United States, are opposed to the growth of China's influence. In a more specific sense, however, although some commentators argue the I2U2 group seems less concerned with security and more with economic development, security and economic development in the context of settler colonialism are not mutually exclusive, rather they're co-constitutive. The overlaps between the Israeli military and agricultural sectors, uh, as well as the attempts to enforce agricultural integration between Kashmir and India with the support of the Indian military, demonstrates that the sterile language of sustainability used in the I2U2's public messaging conceals this and casts a type of like common sense, common goal, rationalism, and veneer of legitimacy upon this mode of entrenching colonial projects in Palestine and Kashmir. So in a sense, like these are sacrificial lambs for the world's security or food security or sustainability or whatever. Um, and now we get to defense and security. So actually, I'm going to have a sip of water before I do this. Um, many commentators on the history of India's normalization with Israel, such as Vijay Prashad, argue that India's approach towards Israel in the 1990s was a broader strategy to reorient not only its foreign policy, but also its military spending away from the, at this point, collapsed USSR and towards the United States bloc. Undoubtedly, the largest component of the political economy of India's relationship with Israel relates to the purchase of defense and security products. In fact, uh, India is currently the largest buyer of Israeli arms. It's a very often quoted fact having purchased 37% of all Israeli military exports during the period between 2018 and 2022. I mean, 37% is a really large number, I have to say, for one country to be purchasing. Um, anyhow, the reason for which I titled this section Defense and Security is because they are not perfect synonyms. During the early phases of the India-Israel relationship, uh, India's primary consideration seemed to be defense. Hence, the raw Mossad back channel set up to counter Pakistan's relationship with China and North Korea, um, which were other powerful militaries in the region. Shir Hever um, explains the difference between defense and security, however, in his book, The Privatization of Israeli Security. He explains that defense, and here I quote him, uh, is as a reaction to an external attack, and a successful defense repels the attack and restores the state of peace. Defense can also be undertaken in preparation for a future or potential threat. Security, on the other hand, and here he has a much longer definition, which I'll quote in full, contains within it a difference that's subtle but significant. So here's his definition of security. He says, it's a state of affairs that signifies an ongoing protection from threats, be they actual or potential, as it includes the notion of deterrence, 
security can be said to take place even in the absence of attack. Unlike defense, which comes into play as a reaction to external stimulus, security procedures and actions can also take place in the complete absence of conflict. Sorry. It's important to note that the logic has already been entrenched, entrenched in Israel's political culture from the, very from the founding of the state. So Hever highlights that defense, and here I'm continuing to quote, is usually understood in the context of defense against foreign attacks. Security also means a constant effort to locate and remove threats from within, thus complicating the distinction between internal and external. Although Hever understands that Israel has always blurred the distinction between defense and security, he cites Didier Bigo in pointing out that this blurring has been happening on a global scale since the 1990s, so incidentally during the period in which India and Israel have grown exceedingly close, especially among organizations that are set up to maintain order, like police forces, which kind of makes relevant why I was quoting the Mumbai police commissioner at the very beginning of this talk. It's also important to look at the connections between securitization and neoliberalism, which Andy Clarno does so excellently in his book, Neoliberal Apartheid. To build upon Hever's definition of security, Clarno defines securitization as, and here I'm quoting him, the proliferation of forces, technologies, and strategies to produce security for the powerful. Here he includes practices such as surveillance and counterinsurgency, which he lists as, and quoting him, integral aspects of racial capitalism, colonialism, and empire for centuries pointing out that as states have carried out aggressive cuts in public spending during a time when expenditure on securitization has increased exponentially, a situation that's as true for India as it is for Israel. Similar to how the sustainability aspect of India and Israel's relationship seeks to address crises caused by both states' embraces of colonialism, Klarno also argues that securitization seeks to address crises created by neoliberalism, hence creating fertile ground for racial capitalism to continue to grow. So he, as he eloquently puts it, securitization and crises therefore are best understood as self-perpetuating products of the neoliberalization of racial capitalism. To hammer the point home further, that matters of security and economic development are not mutually exclusive in the context of settler colonialism, it's useful to recall David Lloyd and Patrick Wolf's statement that, and here I quote them, settler colonialism is not some transitional phase that gives way or even provides a laboratory for the emergent global order. In both the originary and the continuing senses, it's foundational to that order. As a case in point, Israel's use of the so-called Israeli experience in scare quotes as a trope within its marketing of military technology and security products makes it seem as if the continued survival of the Israeli state is a matter of necessity for order to prevail in far off places, thus linking states that are heavily reliant on Israeli arms like India to very specific Israeli security interests. In other words, states invest in Israeli settler colonialism as a process of securitization at home. In India's case, this also includes its own settler colonial project in Kashmir, as well as colonial projects elsewhere within its stated borders. In terms of data, some excellent reporting from Middle East Eye shows us that India spends more than a billion dollars a year on Israeli arms, Earlier in this talk, I mentioned that between 2018 and 2022, India purchased 37% of all Israeli military exports. In percentage terms, this is more than double the proportion that Indian purchases made up in Israeli military exports in the period between 1997 and 2000, when, when 15%, which is already a very large number, of Israeli exports made their way to India. 
Some of the projects purchased included, and here I'm quoting, uh, sorry, included surveillance equipment, drones, and surface-to-air missiles. And more recently, Negev light machine guns, Spice 2000 bombs, and Heron TP medium altitude long endurance uh, UAVs. In addition to purchasing Israeli-made military technology, India has also signed contracts to manufacture Israeli military technology as part of its Make in India campaign. Uh, a SIPRI report from 2022 pointed out, and here quoting the report, in a drive to strengthen the indigenous arms industry, 64% of capital outlays in the 2021 Indian military budget were earmarked for acquisitions of domestically produced arms. With this in mind, the process seemingly began in 2017, when Israel Weapons Industries and Indian construction firm uh, Punj Lloyd built the Punj Lloyd Raksha Systems Factory in Malampur. Madhya Pradesh, with the involvement of the Adani Group and the SK Group. In the same year, Kalyani Rafael Advanced Systems Limited, which brought together the Indian company Kalyani Strategic Systems Limited and the Israeli company Rafael Advanced Systems, started to manufacture guided missiles. According to Isa, and here I quote him, it was the first private company to produce missiles in India. Rafael released a statement saying that we at Rafael are proud of our role, not only in KRAS, but also of our participation in Make in India and our strong relationship with the vibrant talent across India's defense industries. Of course, deals continue to be signed and I possibly cannot cover them all in this section of the talk. Uh, although I can, if we have time, um, show everyone a really terrible video produced by Rafael uh, at a military, for a military arms fair in India in 2009 um, that, that um, I, I feel like I suffered while watching it and everyone else should probably suffer with me. Um, but we can leave that for the end. When asked what the benefit of this intertwining of Indian and Israeli manufacturing industries is to Israel, Richard Rousseau, um, a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, stated that Israeli companies could be, and here I quote him, looking for a larger production base, in which case India is ready to go. Since according to him, India is good at large-scale things like call centers and software development, but Israel is doing packaged software. India is doing back-office biotech research, but Israel actually has products that are out there in the global markets more than India does. To add some credence to this statement, looking at the partnerships that do exist as part of the Make in India campaign, Major Israeli producers such as IAI, Elbit Systems, and Rafael have partnered with companies that belong to giant manufacturing conglomerates, such as Mahindra, Tata, and the Adani Group. Israeli companies have also taken advantage of India's technology sector. Samir Patel, by way of example, mentions how Israeli precision bombs use Bangalore-based company Tombo Imaging's electro-optics technology. Bangalore, of course, is currently India's most prominent tech hub city, drawing comparisons with Silicon Valley. The third pillar of the political economy of the India-Israel relationship is infrastructure. Although it sounds a little vague, I'm using this section to bring together both the infrastructure of regional and global logistics through my analysis of the Haifa port situation, as well as Israel's attempts to build infrastructure domestically, an industry that's currently heavily reliant on Palestinian labor. Similar to how Israel looks to manufacture security products in India due to its broad manufacturing capacity, a reported dearth of skilled labor in Israel has led to Israel looking to bring in tens of thousands of Indian workers, the majority, uh, about 34,000, of whom are meant to work in the construction sector. 
During the meeting in which this was announced, the Israeli Foreign Minister Eli Cohen and the Indian Foreign Minister S.J. Shankar reportedly, and here I quote uh, the report from the time, discussed ways to strengthen Indo-Israel ties by adding direct flights, continuing cooperation in agriculture and water management, and expanding cooperation in the fields of art artificial intelligence and cyber defense. Devirupa Mitra notes that the increased quota of workers arriving from India and other countries still may not be enough to address the critical dearth of manpower in the housing sector, to use her words. As per the words of a senior official in the Israeli Contractors and Builders Association, who stated that the reported numbers are 15,000 workers short of what's needed. While the Indian workers due to arrive in Israel may not seem to close the gap in terms of the demand for construction labor, they do fulfill an important role within Israeli settler colonialism, which is rendering Palestinian labor disposable. This is not an unprecedented move. In the 1990s, Israel invited large numbers of agricultural workers from Thailand to attempt to achieve the same objective or a similar objective in agriculture, which is another industry heavily reliant on Palestinian labor. It's worth noting here that important work by Matan Kaminer on this event shows how it ultimately led to ecological devastation in the central Araba region south of the Dead Sea. While the construction of the physical infrastructure of Israeli buildings may be stalling due to labor shortages, the construction of settler colonial economic infrastructure of dispossession continues. It's also important to note here, um, to point out here that inflows of Indian labor into Kashmir have also been met with violence from Kashmiri resistance groups. Sayyid Ali Shah Gilani, one of the most important leaders of the liberation struggle during his lifetime, identified the arrival of workers from across India, with most coming from Bihar, Uttar Pradesh, and West Bengal in particular, to Kashmir as a process tending towards a demographic change long before Article 370 was revoked in August 2019. The revocation, of course, triggered lively discussions within academia about applying the settler colonial framework to Kashmir. In this context, one must be aware of two phenomena at play. First, pay for migrants is higher in Kashmir than in most parts of India. And Manish Jha, uh, who did research on this, points out that workers in Kashmir are able to send home remittances that are 50% higher than uh, migrant workers in other parts of India. Um, and at the same time, the Kashmiri researcher Ejaz Ahmed Ture points out that Kashmiri local laborers, and here I'm quoting him, are out migrating due to the existence of the army in the valley, which pushes lots of concerns of intrusion, insecurity for women, and create obstacles in doing any work. So on one hand, uh, there's a lot more money in Kashmir that can be sent out. And on, and on the other hand, uh, Kashmiris themselves are leaving for India due to security reasons, not due to fine economic reasons. As for the Haifa port, recently bought by Adani Ports and Special Economic Zone, as I, as I kind of opened this talk with, uh, in a deal marred by the revelations of the Hindenburg Report, it's important to first emphasize the significance of ports and logistics to global capitalism. According to Lale Khalili, who published an excellent book on the subject a few years ago called Sinews of War and Trade, she says that maritime transportation is not simply an enabling adjunct of trade, but is central to the very fabric of global capitalism, because maritime trade, logistics, and hydrocarbon transport are the clearest distillation of how global capitalism op operates today. And these are her words. 
According to her, one of the results of the maritime transport enterprise is the creation of racialized hierarchies of labor. So keeping in mind the discussion earlier about China and the I2U2 group, it's relevant to note here that the bid by Adani Ports and the Gadot group, which was kind of the minority partner in that bid, which is an Israeli uh, business group, to control the Haifa port, had very clear geopolitical undertones. China controls the other major port in Haifa, and the Adani port's Gadot uh, bid for the Haifa port was at least 55% higher than any other bid, including one from a Chinese firm, sidelined after diplomatic pressure from the US. Furthermore, the free trade agreements that the UAE has signed with Israel and India also add another dimension to the new corridor being created by the Indian takeover of the Haifa port. It provides an alternative to China's one belt, one road linkages in connecting Asia with the Mediterranean and, and therefore with Europe. It's even more evident when taking into account plans for the so-called peace railway, which is meant to connect Haifa with the Gulf. This will dampen China's market share, so to speak, in what will become one of the most important logistic routes in the world, as well as give states an incentive to invest in Israel's stability as a state, whether in its current form or in a more authoritarian one. Of course, such a railway link would depend on the rapidly developing conversation on Saudi normalization with Israel, but here it's relevant to point out that the USA is promoting this as part of their Tracks for Regional Peace plan by which it seeks to incentivize Saudi Arabia in its normalization talks. And so it'll be really interesting to see what happens there. Without a doubt, however, the political economy of the India-Israel relationship is also rife with cronyism and personal favors. This is not a surprise when considering that both Modi and Netanyahu are incredibly skilled political operators who are able to play corruption games really well. One of the most obvious examples of this is the role played by businesses owned by Gautam Adani, so Adani like Adani Ports and Adani Group, uh, within this political economy. So far, we've mentioned Adani's takeover of the Haifa port, as well as his company's alliances with Israeli arms companies, for example. Adani is also an important figure in processes of settler colonial dispossession in Kashmir and Australia, where one of his businesses is involved in mining in territories held by indigenous communities. Um, and here I'm borrowing from a really important article written by Goldie Usuri and Atarzia. Sorry. James Crabtree, in his book, Billionaire Raj, outlines the personal relationship between Modi and Adani. And here I'm going to just quote him at length. Adani's businesses began taking off in the years following Modi's arrival as Gujarat's chief minister in 2001. Under Modi, the state grew into a vibrant industrial hub with a particular strength in export-focused manufacturing, even being compared with the Pearl River Delta, the region around Hong Kong that powered China's transformation into a global trading giant. The two men enjoyed symbiotic careers. Modi's pro-business policies helped Adani expand. Adani's own companies, meanwhile, built many of the grand projects that came to symbolize Modi's Gujarat model. With, with its emphasis on investment on infrastructure investment, attracting foreign capital and export industries. There were temperamental bonds too. Both were self-made men with little formal education. Both were traditional in their tastes, guarded their privacy and were distrustful of outsiders. Both spoke in halting English. Both in general avoided talking to the press. Where other Gujarati industrialists like Mukesh Ambani uh, often settled in Mumbai, Adani stayed in Ahmedabad, becoming the state's most recognizable businessman. The duo were said to get on well, 
Adani was loyal too, defending Modi in the aftermath of the bloody Hindu-Muslim Gujarat riots that hit Gujarat in 2002, a time when Modi faced fierce public criticism. Um, I'm not comfortable with using the term riots in this context, and anyone who wants to know why should watch the, the BBC documentary, just the first episode. The second episode was not as good, um, called The Modi Question that came out last year. It also caused a huge diplomatic row between the UK and, and India. In terms of what Adani benefited from in Israel, he declared that part of his bid was to, quote, transform the Haifa skyline. In his speech at the signing ceremony for the Haifa port deal, Adani announced that his companies, and here I'm quoting him, have initiated several dozen technology relationships wherein we have offered the entire Adani portfolio of companies to be a giant sandbox for us to learn together. And that we are also in the process of setting up an artificial intelligence lab in Tel Aviv which will work in close collaboration with our new AI labs in India and the US. So to conclude, uh, the political economy of the India-Israel relationship is based on several logics and objectives that lie at the convergence of both states' economic and colonial projects. Its strongest three and a half pillars can broadly be categorized as sustainability, infrastructure, and defense and security. But these pillars are designed to uphold a more expansive architecture of racism, dispossession, and the consolidation of very specific visions for the future of both respective states based on their integration into global networks of logistics, discourses, and capital flows, an apartheid, ethnocratic, and exclusively Jewish state for Israel, and an expansionist Hindu nationalist state for India, the Bharat of Akan Bharat, I suppose. Um, as I have hopefully demonstrated through this talk, um, the racial othering of Palestinians, Indian Muslims, Kashmiris, and other groups are an essential component of this political economy, and these clearly have global impacts. And furthermore, the preservation of specific types of economies or economic norms are also linked to the preservation of these forms of racial othering, not only rhetorical, but also practical terms. In other words, the blurring of the distinction, and on this sentence I'm going to end, between economic and security objectives is a consequence of both states' attempts to carry out projects of dispossession and ethnic cleansing, both of which are constitutive practices of settler colonialism. I'm um, sorry, I've realized I've taken a really long time there, um, but I'm 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 done done. No, thanks, Abdullah. I, I thought I I I just I think you moved much quicker than I remember in the written text uh, towards the end. So I was just worried if there was the infrastructure section, but you you no, no, no. You, you put it in quite nicely <laughs> into the last section. But thank you very much. Um, so uh, I think the chat function's been enabled. So if uh, any member of the audience wants to ask a question, please uh, put it in the Q&A box or in the chat box, uh, either one we can have a look at. And if there's any questions coming up on the on the Facebook feed, let, you know, please, this is your time. So, I mean, I'll let, we'll let the audience maybe have a minute or two to, 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 uh, to, to think, think about some responses to what you said. I mean, while, while they're thinking, um, I, I kind of I, I mean I really uh, enjoyed the way that when that you started uh, talking about um, the fact that the Israel India relationship has kind of just been there since the Congress period um, and since Nehru, but it but it but it's kind of transformed quite a lot. I mean, and do, but do you see that transformation in relationship to the end of the Cold War and the beginning of 
I mean, would you mark this transformation as like in relationship to this these geo, this geopolitical shift? So the, during the Cold War, there were you know the 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 Palestinian cause was lined up with sort of an ongoing process of decolonization from the nineteen well, from nineteen forty seven onwards, um, and then there are the two big unfinished businesses of that decolonization. One could argue are Palestine and South Africa. Um, and and then we we get this you know South Africa putatively becomes uh, liberated though you know one might argue about that as well but you know let's say there is a majority government there's a democratic majority government there but the but the Palestinian issue kind of just doesn't get resolved and then we go into the war on terror with the fall of the Soviet Union like we go into this and and then it's sort of uh, you know, it's kind of left there. And so I was wondering whether you would tie this into a kind of bigger, that bigger geopolitical, or or, or do you think that in some senses that those bigger geopolitical issues are not as important as the kind of, in, yeah, okay, go on, let me just see what you think. Uh, no, I think that's a great question, and it's a really interesting one to contend with, because often when I think about like the transformations that happened in the relationship between India and Israel, yeah, there's kind of like two levels to it. One, which is kind of like this global geopolitical level, uh, as you say, like with the fall of the Soviet Union and and also to and in some ways also kind of like the fall of the apartheid regime in South Africa, because I think that's also the point at which um, particularly uh, Israel, I'm, I'm not so sure about India, but particularly Israel also realizes that like um, Part of the reason that apartheid fell in South Africa was because the apartheid system was no longer super relevant to the interests of like the big capitalist companies in South Africa. Um, and so that's also kind of tied in with, with Israel's own economic transformation and its integration into kind of like these global flows of capital that I kind of tried to allude to. At the same time, though, I mean, uh, you know, like I was trying to say that India under under Congress had 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 kind of like this very kind of like shrewd foreign policy towards West Asia, um, where it was trying to kind of like counteract Pakistan's influence in the Arab states as well, um, through kind of like these, I guess I suppose you can call them like very sort of constructivist, like Muslim solidarities and things like that, that I'm not so sure I ascribe to so much, but I can imagine that may have been part of kind of like foreign policy thinking 50 years ago, 70 years ago. Um, I mean, it's 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 relevant to me always, and I was really surprised when I found this out during my research that, like Nehru, for example, um, had lobbied very strongly for Israel's inclusion at Bandon. Um, there's really interesting work by Nahid Samur that points this out, um, which kind of shows that, like the 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 relationship was not always so cold, um, and that India did see benefit in having relationships with with Israel even then. Um, on the other hand, there's also the domestic level because, as we know, like the arrival of like the BJP into power in the last decade was not like this huge surprise, right? Like the the most deeply entrenched, I suppose, fascist movement in the world is, is the Hindu nationalist movement. You know, this is a movement that has been consolidating for pretty much a century. Yep. You know, like Essentials of Hindutva was published in 1923, yep. I think, if I'm correct. And yep. now we're in 2023, so literally a century, um, if not more. And so I think that that relationship has also always been really relevant between um, between kind of like the Hindu nationalists and, and the Zionist movement and those resonances. Um, and so 
I, I, I suppose like I don't, it's difficult for me to kind of like isolate the, the international global geopolitical from like the domestic Indian context as well. Um, because of course, during those ensuing decades, like we know that, you know, the, the Hindu nationalists very carefully tried to consolidate within Indian institutions and not within like the highest reaches of the state. Absolutely. Uh, up yeah. until up until the 90s, Absolutely. up until yeah. the 80s and 90s. Um, and so I, I I I don't know. Does does that answer the question? Yeah, I mean, I was just I I, I suppose yeah, I, I, I think that the on the geopolitical level, Nehru comes across as this great third world leader. And it, it's kind of like, but when you start looking at the domestic stuff, the kind of things that Nehru gets up to in the 48 to 50 period, which uh, my colleague Rakesh Ankit, his latest work is going to talk about, it's pretty, he's he's extremely violent in all, lots of parts of India. It's not just in Nagaland or in Kashmir, where of course exactly. it's, I've been it's strong, but he's like, he's example. just, you know, yeah. villages of communists are being killed by the yeah. state. I mean, there's just so much uh, violence going on, autocratic violence, and yet he's seen as this kind of figure. There are, I'm just I'm just colonizing the space, he's using that word, overusing the word. There are two questions in the Q&A. Um, shall I I'll let, shall I read them out so it gives you a chance to um, think yeah. about them or yeah well, well you can read them for yourself but just for the audience that I don't mind at all uh, Ahmed thanks for a great talk how do you view reports on the increases cases of Indians using tourist visas to instead seek jobs in Israel is this for example viewed as a welcome effort to strengthen the relationship and, and I think this does tie into that whole immigration debate in Israel which we all know about recently those was it with Ethiopians there was there was like kind of quite a lot of violence the police were using yeah. against. yeah I mean Israel also has its internal insecurities about kind of like uh you know uh immigrants who are not from you know white European backgrounds also um, I'm not so much of an expert on that, but I mean, that's that's something that one can certainly follow up if they want to find the literature on it. But just to kind of address this question about Indians trying to come to visit uh, Israel, I, I, I remember, I can't remember exactly where I read it, but there was a really hilarious episode um, in, I think it was when, when, when Modi went to visit in 2017, and he had, you know, that famous, like, strolling on the beach with Netanyahu, the really weird, like, Baywatch-style photos and um, where where um, something that was overlooked at the time was that a very large like delegation went with Modi of like journalists and you know like various like entrepreneurs and whatever mostly journalists and 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 kind of like Netanyahu noted to he's reported to have noted to Modi to say oh wow like you know you've brought many Indians with you um, you know to to come to Israel hopefully there will be more but then he goes but not too many more. You know, <laughs> and so um, I, I I remember being a bit dumbstruck when I read that because I thought, wow, like that's such disrespect to the face of your like prime minister, who some people even elevate to the level of a god, um, and yet still, you know, people out there on the internet are are, are you know. Um, but they re but they recently did sign some agreement for forty thousand workers, did, yeah, right? Or something. Right. So there has there has been this kind of. Uh, yeah, but there's also this political pendulum in Israel that often swings back and forth between like, yes, we want more labor from abroad, but no, actually the Palestinian labor and no, like, you know, they they speak Hebrew, some of them speak Hebrews, they know like the market, they know the land well. They So there's also like this kind of insecurity inside of Israel also that I think possibly, I think if someone were to do like a historical sociological study of settler colonialism also really ties into that. But 
Absolutely. Um, but that's like, these two factors are very relevant and kind of like at, at, at different ends to one another. All right. And there's another question, which kind of is a big shift, but it's fine because you covered loads of these things. Uh, the shift to cash crops in the agricultural economy of J&K is said to be motivated by the government's efforts to bring higher returns to the farmers. What's your take on that? What's the state of farmers' livelihood vis-a-vis -vis the shift? vis-a-vis -vis this shift and all the other programs bought by the government, to what degree has it been detrimental, beneficial? So um, there are many big problems with the cash crops um, that have that like political ecologists and kind of like ecological geographers have addressed um, in the literature in the last few decades. Um, one of which, for example, is like uh, growing like monoculture, which means like growing one crop in a place without kind of like rotating it with another crop or growing some other crop with it. This often results in damaging like soil quality. And so, I mean, cash crops can give you like really big returns, but eventually, you know, at some point the soil runs dry and it becomes really difficult to, that's, that's not very sustainable if you're thinking about the long term. Um, on the other hand as well also like it's important to note that while there are attempts to kind of like start to grow these new cash crops um, in Kashmir at the same time like the the building of infrastructure projects is also usually environmentally detrimental there are a lot of reports that have come out in recent months about like the, the water quality in lakes being like undrinkable fish all dying uh, people whose livelihoods come from like these, you know, sources, these these kind of like natural areas be, being diminished. Um, and so I think the, the the kind of the cash crops in a sense are like a political bribe almost uh, on, on, on like a population level. Uh, that's not to mention as well the fact that, um, so I, I interviewed some time ago someone who had like someone whose family owned like some land in Kashmir and they were talking about how um, oftentimes also the foreign varieties that they try to grow of like apples or walnuts or, or whatever um, can sometimes also bring with them new diseases that the farmers haven't seen before. Um, and so I imagine that these centers of excellence, and here I'm, I'm guessing, but I imagine that these centers of excellence that Israel is trying to kind of uh, build in, in Srinagar and in Jammu may seek to try and find ways to like push the longevity of of kind of like bringing in foreign varieties and monoculture and all of that. Um, but ultimately, uh, the, 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 the problems, if they're not there right now, they'll be there down the line um, in terms of the, the environmental impact. Kashmir's ecosystem is also notably very fragile. So in between kind of the construction of um, infrastructure for the military, for the tourists, and also the arrival of tourists, because the, the, the land does not have that absorptive capacity for like careers of tourists to be showing up. Um, uh, the, the, the impacts will be pretty severe. Okay, yeah, thank you. Um, there's another question again by an anonymous attendee. Uh, the I2U2 group, which is India, Israel, UAE, and the US, uh, just announced a new joint space adventure. Um, and you you touched on this, but I think it's actually quite this is quite a nice uh, question uh, to, to to flesh it out a bit. How can we discuss the India uh, Israel relationship, thinking about the US and the UAE? Yeah, I mean, because and the relationship, as we said, kind of in your question that you asked me, also has its connections with with geopolitics, um, and of course, states have interests in their relationships with other states. Like how we kind of talked about how Israel kind of, sorry, not Israel, India moved to kind of like, 
you know, become part of the U.S. bloc after the end of the Cold War because, again, of geopolitical reasons. Um, we can talk in many ways about kind of like the, the U.S. and the UAE in this context. I mean, I think the most relevant one is also uh, the question of, um, there are two actually, well, three kind of. One is the question of logistics and logistics flows, um, because I think this is often overlooked uh, when we think about kind of like economics on a global scale is, is how do a good actually like we talk about flows of capital, but how, how, how do like these things actually move um, is one thing. Uh, another is, of course, if we're talking about particularly India and, and, and the Gulf more, more generally, not just the UAE, it's, it's, it's the flow of capital in terms of investment and also the flow of labor. Um, and of course, like the, the, the many of the Gulf states previously had been politically more oriented towards good relations with Pakistan, but at the same time, uh, Indian labor has been there for a very long time, and Indian labor also fulfills a political role in the region generally, uh, which I think is often overlooked that it's not only an economic role, but it's also a political one, which is that you know, uh, Indian labor was not always there, you know, yes, there were Indian traders and certain laborers, but Indian labor in general was not always there. There were other forms of labor that existed before. And those laborers brought with them their problematics in terms of, if you think about like the middle of the century, like the Cold War as well and organizing and the development of leftist thought and things like that. Um, and so there's also this interconnection that exists and so I think, yeah, it's it's really important actually to bring into play like thinking about India's relationship with the Gulf and the US. And then of course, there's the kind of, in a sense, to use a very crude term, the mutual enemy of China. Um, a lot of Indian policy is also oriented towards containing China. Um, we know that in 19, was it 62, when, when China invaded, uh, or when China kind of like started a war uh, also in, in Ladakh, it was... Um, also seen as like a huge infringement on India's sovereignty, but ironically, at the time, India had not yet drawn its border in that region or declared its border in that region. Um, but even that, like to think, why was that region so important, considering that it's so sparsely populated? It's because that's where the road between uh, East Turkestan and, and Tibet is. Okay. So that's also a logistical link as well. So these are all, I think, ways that, I mean, allow us to think about India and Israel and this broader context of like the Gulf states and, and the United States. Then the next question I think is, is going to be one that's going to help you with your PhD thinking. <laughs> it's quite a long question. So um, while the tracks of capital and authority, while the tracks of capital and authoritarian regimes go closely without having to necessarily overlap in the case of India and Israel, it seems there are limits to the thriving of market ties. India is a huge economy, though being monopolized, while Israel is a small economy which never really invests anywhere. All these projects like IAP are bringing experts doing contract farming, but no investment in India. So in the end, is ideology the only motivation here for India and Israel? Or does the political economy have any scope here? Assuming, of course, monopoly capitalism as is now prevailing in India. I hope that was clear enough, but I kind of think you get the gist. I mean, it's, a, I it's not. Yeah, I mean, I was, it's something I kind of, I think I was sort of hinting when I was commenting on your work. Well, as well. I think it's, it's like, a really interesting it's a capitalism question. question and the, yeah. No, that's definitely a really interesting question. And I mean, like at the moment, what I'm what I've been reading a lot about recently was also about kind of like the the, the neoliberal transformation, like the question of like opening markets. 
Um, and I often thought to myself that I don't think, uh, you know, kind of like neoliberalism, the rest of the world is a good explanation for neoliberalism in India and Israel. Um, but, you know, I, I, a PhD is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a long process. And so I learn things all the time. Um, and so recently I've started to think that I've started to kind of like learn and realize as well that like the, the kind of primary, you know, motive for like India and Israel's early economic policies were kind of like this notion of like economic independence. Um, I don't think Israel ever achieved that. Um, I'm not sure about India, but Israel certainly never did. Um, but I think there was a calculation made uh, at some point in history in both states that recognized that uh, a totally isolated economy can no longer be uh, economically independent, ironically, um, because of um, you know, the fact that capital is not moving or growing at such a large pace um, uh, or, or, or whatever various reasons that economists in these countries have come up with. Um, and so I've learned that Israel right now has has very large like cash reserves, which which kind of in a sense mean that it can be theoretically economically independent if there were some sort of like political change in the United States that would stop the flow of like military aid. Um, I don't know if that's ever forthcoming, but I suppose if you're a state, that's a very important existential thing if you're so reliant on, on billions of dollars from, from one country to maintain your military that like kind of like, in a sense is justified by the existence of your state and justifies the existence of your state at the same time. Um, and I think as well, um, I think as well in India, it's been able to kind of like practice diplomacy in new and interesting ways because of the fact that there are now these like really large billionaires in India. Um, and so in a sense, yeah, I think, I think that like the, the, the project of neoliberalism is not neoliberalism for neoliberalism's sake. And it's not, and not all neoliberalisms are the same. Uh, there's kind of like, yes, this ironic, and sometimes it can be contradictory if you don't think about it too deeply, notion that they, they are still trying to achieve economic independence um, and to try and be economically nationalist in a way through uh, further integration. But at the same time also, I mean, I did talk about the fact that you know, Israeli companies may be not investing in India, but they are manufacturing in India. Yeah. Um, you know, and particularly like mil military um, uh, technology companies. And so I, I suppose there is also a certain kind of like business logic that if you can manufacture at greater scale in India than you can at home, why wouldn't you if you, again, you know, like the military sector is so important to the existence of your state, um, which it is in the case of Israel. So I, I, I think there's also like a business logic to it. Um, now from India's perspective, I, I suppose the, 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 the sort of like political logic of that is that, um, you know, there is this manufacturing capacity inside of India and India also has its own issues of like stability and, 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 and trying to like maintain its presence in certain areas. And these technologies are essential to that also. And so in that sense, uh, I, I suppose there is like a sort of business logic, but like I said in the talk, uh, security and economics are not, they're not, uh, they're not so different uh, when we're talking about cases of colonialism and particularly settler colonialism. Okay, I mean, I, I mean, there's, there are quite a few more questions, but I think we are being, 
I think we'll maybe take one more and, and I quite I'm going to like take my privilege as a chair because I think this is quite a this is quite a, it's a bit of a light question so it's well none of this is light but it's a it's a question where I think you can at least enjoy yourself because I've been I've been listening your talk was uh smattered with Bollywood references so uh one of the uh one of the one of the oh, one of the people on the web chat has said thanks so much for your talk this was excellent i researched the connections between the far right in israel and india and how they weaponize yoga to advance their colonial and ethno-national agendas you spoke a bit how they use culture via bollywood to normalize their expansionist and genocidal policies can you say more about this and and actually this person wants to email you and be in touch in okay. the future it's so I, I mean you can also just respond yeah. to them in the chat like once we once we've yeah, i mean I, I don't know that much about yoga to be honest i mean i think the bollywood they're they're kind of did... that i'm not that type of person unfortunately <laughs> but <laughs> the body, i think the bollywood and the culture yeah. stuff you kind of you did mention a little bit so i remember uh some years ago I, I think it may have been 2016 or 2017 i'm not exactly sure um because this was not part of my research it was just something i did out of interest there was a big story about um about uh was it uh india got really upset because the the palestinian ambassador in islamabad was seen at a protest with uh with hafiz saeed um, and then there was a whole thing where like the PA recalled their ambassador from Islamabad and then they were trying to like placate, uh, you know, they were trying to placate um, the, the Indian uh, sort of diplomats who were in Ramallah. And, and I contacted a friend of mine who works at the, at the Palestinian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And I said to him, like, what's going on? And he said to me back then that, oh, you know, like there's this really big defense deal of like I don't know how many millions of dollars uh, or even billions I'm not even sure because I can't think of which defense deal it was that he was specifically talking about but he was saying there's this big defense deal that's going to be signed between India and, and Israel and at the same time there's also plans to start shooting Bollywood films in Israel uh -huh. and, and the PA are very upset about this but at the same time they want to like adopt a soft diplomacy approach to India to try and like win them back over I think it was a complete failure from like Abu Mazen apparently this was directly his his mm. his decision um but I I have been waiting for many years to see these films and I guess now they're coming out one after the other um like I said I watched Mission Majnu that was awful um very interesting from a research perspective um I also watched uh, Class which was even more awful um, but again, even in that, there was a really interesting scene where like the, well, the one Kashmiri Muslim character gave a speech about Palestine in the model UN. And so it's it's really bizarre that now when I watch Bollywood, often like Palestine comes up or like Israel comes up. Um, and 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 so, I mean, th th that's I guess that's some sort of mainstreaming as well. Uh, but I'm not I'm not a, I, I'm not so much a cultural scholar, but yeah. this is very fascinating to me. I just I really enjoyed the way you dropped the film hints in. So yeah. I think that was, <laughs> I, and I, I kind of thought this is actually a really nice way of being interdisciplinary. Yeah, and then with the yoga, hard political I mean, economy, but also seeing how it gets manifested yeah. in these in these ways is really also, you know, I mean, because part of the economy you know, this is part of the circulation of money. The film industry is a big circulation of money throughout, of of what you know, of informal money throughout the whole of this region, basically. And again, it might be the Israel wants to tap in into some a bit of that informal economy, which the other 
which UAE is kind of quite big in terms of a lot of films are shot in UAE, UAE as well. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, so, so, I, so as I said, there are a few more questions, but we have come like I, the. Uh, I think we're probably coming to the end of the time. Um, I'm getting indications from you. Just, just to address the last person very quickly. I mean, sure. um, is this they want to email list? me. My my email address is on my Twitter, so my Twitter is somewhere on the posts for this event. So Brilliant. that's that's how to contact me. So um, I'd like to yeah just say thanks again, uh, Abdullah. Really enjoyed that talk, and uh, good luck with your with your PhD. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed this as well. And thanks to everyone who's been here. We will be uh, there. Will be uh, another talk in the series, but as I said, it's an occasional series, so it's usually when uh, we identify a really good speaker, such as Abdullah, uh, who's who talks really well to the topic. Thanks very much.